We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good. That's how we'll walk away. Aloha and happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening to the Layman's Lounge podcast, which is a ministry of the laymanslounge.com, where we exist to bring everyday theology to encourage Christians for everyday life. I'm Jason Stopanol. I'm a business process analyst and a YWAMer here in Kona, Hawaii. Aloha. And then all the other line is Dr. Robert Tracy McKenzie. How are you, Dr. McKenzie? I am fine, Jason. Thank you. Sure. I just finished off some eggnog. Is that, yeah. Is that anathema for me to already be drinking eggnog? So the so, so the listener can know we're recording this Friday and Thanksgiving is, what is it, Thursday? Next, so it's six days away. So am I busted for cracking out the eggnog that soon? I'm not going to report you to anyone. So you're okay. all right. Good to go. What about, what about Christmas music? How early we get Christmas music in the <laughs> McKenzie house? We haven't yet, although I, I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed to say we've been watching Hallmark Christmas movies for several weeks, actually, now. <laughs> What do you know about Amy Grant Christmas? Uh, zero. How's that? Oh, man, that's I grew up on tender tennis. What's your go to? What's your go to Christmas? Oh, uh, for Christmas, actually, my, my wife and I uh, attend the, the Messiah every year. It's just the highlight of our Christmas season. And so I love Handel's Messiah and oh, would man. play that as loud as it would go on the stereo. Um, yeah. That's actually super edifying. Well, right on. Okay, I might have to steal your guys's yearly date and take my wife. Uh, so Dr. Dr. McKinsey is the chair of faith and learning and professor and chair of the Department of History at Wheaton College. Uh, he's the author of A Little Book for New Historians, Why and How to Study History, and also a book that we're going to be discussing today, The First Thanksgiving what the real story tells us about loving God and learning from history, IVP academic 2013. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, before I get into like some specific questions and our, our, the interview isn't necessarily going to go this way, but why do humans, not even just historians, but humans, why do we kind of love like the drama of finding certain long held traditional beliefs are like embellished or like uncovering misconceptions, like actually the pilgrims didn't have buckles on their shoes and, and they probably weren't even black. So why, why do we love like uncovering stuff? Do you know about that? I know, cause you wrote, like, like we said, a book on like even the process of history and why. You got any thoughts? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, for professional historians, there's this idea that you score points when you can show that what people think turns out to be false, right? And I mean, a, a lot of how you make your reputation is by correcting other other views and saying, no, mine is the right view. What it says about human nature that we're fascinated with this, I don't know that I can can say, right? I don't know. Um, yeah. Um, it's been a few years now since you wrote the book. What have you, what have you found that has stuck with you about like pilgrims or thanksgiving like it might be yeah. something that really is twice removed and not even be around the season but yeah yeah you know honestly uh well there have been 
multiple things, but the first thing that comes to mind immediately is just this whole concept of, of pilgrimage. Uh, I started studying the pilgrims uh, for a variety of reasons, but mostly because uh, I wanted to study the first holiday, uh, the first Thanksgiving holiday, excuse me, and, and understand it in its context. And uh, what that meant was uh, learning more about these people that you study in grammar school, right? Uh, and never think about probably after uh, third grade or so. Yeah. Uh, and I'll be honest, I had not dwelt as a Christian that much on this concept of, of pilgrimage until I started to do the research uh, into the first Thanksgiving. Uh, because I was, I was just so struck that the um, individuals that I was studying took so very, very seriously that the world was not their home, uh, that their hope had to be uh, beyond this, this life. Uh, and I think it was probably easy for them, easy maybe is not the right choice of words, but given the fact that uh, death was ubiquitous around them, uh, that the threat of death was sort of constant, that their lives even um, uh, in the best case were arduous, I can understand why they um, clung to this uh, hope uh, as they did. And it just made me more aware of how um, the comfort of our own lives can become a real, a real obstacle to that. Wow. Yeah. Um, and and I, w I was convicted by that. And I've tried to be more self-conscious in thinking of my own life as a pilgrimage uh, in which um, the, the new heaven and the new earth is, is where my citizenship lies and where my hope uh, rests, mm. as opposed to um, uh, anything that's happening. Sure. Uh, in my immediate context. So, so that's the first thing that comes to mind that has definitely stayed with me and I think will uh, for the rest of my life. Nice. So going back to what, what I think is the beginning, but it might not be, you could tell me who were these people, the, the pilgrims, the Mayflower, where did they come from and why? I think in, you know, in second grade, it's like, they came from England because they were persecuted, but maybe they actually ended up being in in Holland and they had an all right life. What? Yeah. Who are these people? <laughs> so uh, the yeah, the group that we refer to as pilgrims were typically what we really mean is the, the folks who are the passengers on the Mayflower who come to New England in 1620. If we sort of move backward in history and look at that uh, group, some of the folks that were on that uh, voyage were just um, English people who, for whatever reason, were enlisted by various financiers for this venture and were willing to take part. Mm. But the other, other subset of those passengers uh, was um, a congreg or came from a congregation that originated in England uh, in a little rural area north of London, a little, a little village called Scrooby. Uh, and these were Puritans uh, in England. So they were Protestants who um, did not believe that the Anglican church had sufficiently distanced itself from Catholicism. They, they looked at the hierarchy of priests and bishops and said that that's, that's not biblical. They were concerned about the, the, the liturgy of worship, uh, particularly the prescribed use of the Book of Common Prayer. That was something that they just thought was not um, scripturally mandated. Uh, and so they're wanting to purify uh, the Anglican church. But the, the congregation at Scrooby ultimately 
uh, becomes part of a subset of Puritans uh, that we refer to as separatists. So they would have said the Anglican church needs to be purified, uh, but they're not at all optimistic that that can take place within the church. Uh, and the sort of the most um, radical, I guess would be the term uh, position, uh, will be that they don't consider the Anglican church a true church and they do not feel comfortable uh, worshiping uh, or, or learning under the teaching of an Anglican priest. So they're meeting um, privately, uh, basically violating the law and doing that, defying the, the government to do that. And ultimately, partly or mostly, I would say, because of fear of persecution, they migrate not to New England, but to uh, Holland, uh, as, <laughs> as you said. So they go to Holland in uh, the year 1608. They go to Amsterdam first, which was the largest city. Uh, it's enormous uh, for its day, and they're already... Uh, some other congregations there that they're not sure they're going to agree with. So they relocate within a year uh, to a smaller city. It's still a good-sized city called Leiden, uh, and they're going to be there from about 1609 to 1620. The, the thing we always say, you, you mentioned what you learned in grammar school, we're always told that the pilgrims come to uh, America in search of religious liberty, and often we say explicitly fleeing persecution. They definitely were trying to avoid persecution and leaving England, but they describe Holland as very uh, tolerant. Um, there's a couple of pilgrim writers that leave us most of the evidence that we have. And the best known is William Bradford, who's going to be the, the governor of Plymouth Colony for most of the rest of his life. Uh, and Bradford says um, they're enjoying liberty, religious liberty in life. And he describes the, the depth of the fellowship and the richness of the congregational life with really um, positive, uh, almost um, sentimental kind of language. I mean, he, he thinks very fondly and warmly of that time in terms of the life of the church. Uh, but they'll describe other things that are, are not uh, positive. Uh, one is just the economy. Um, these are rural people. Uh, who have relocated to a cosmopolitan, um, for its time, economically sophisticated and advanced foreign uh, land, uh, but also a land that very carefully controls access to its skilled crafts. Mm. So as, as non-natives, they're relegated to really the worst kinds of jobs. They're doing piecework. Uh, that is to say, they're helping to make uh, wool and cloth by hand whole family probably working together, you know, 12 or 15 hours a day, six days a week. Yeah. Uh, and that's just to, to barely uh, scratch by. Uh, and so Bradford says they're getting old before their time. They're getting discouraged. Some are even returning to England knowing that it's a forbidding environment in terms of religious liberty. Uh, and so that's one thing. Uh, they're concerned about the culture. Uh, you have to read between the lines a little bit, but we gather that there's some conflict with the, uh, their Dutch neighbors. Um, they, they worry that their children are being really influenced by a culture that they see as too permissive. Uh, the Dutch uh, neighbors don't take the Sabbath as seriously as they do. They don't raise their children as strictly as the pilgrims think are appropriate. Uh, and so they're worried. They're worried about the future of their children. Uh, they're worried that they're becoming more and more Dutch and less and less uh, English. Uh, 
So these are things that they have in mind uh, when they ultimately decide to relocate. Um, yeah. So am I, am I hearing this right? Like in theory, it's, it's like some Puritans from one sort of one specific church in this one specific area? Uh, yes. And, and so, you know, it's a little bit more complicated than that. The, the people that we tend to remember, William Bradford, who's the one who becomes the governor for about 30 years. Um, William Brewster, who is one of the elders for this uh, church in Plymouth. They originated in one congregation in one tiny little village in northern England, about 150 miles north of, of London. Uh, and maybe, maybe a hundred or so ultimately relocate from, from this area to Holland. Mm. Uh, some of those ultimately though will stay, uh, and others will, will, uh, become part of the, of the migration. So it's not just that congregation, but they're really sort of the, the nucleus. Got you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so in theory, there are congregations probably all over England they each took their own approach and it just so happened to be, we really know this approach of this specific crew. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, so the, the pilgrims are going to be really one of the earliest waves of a major wave of migration of Puritans mm. uh, that unfolds over a couple of decades. Sometimes it's referred to as the great migration. Uh, and uh, we tend to remember the, the larger, much larger migration that goes to Massachusetts, to the Massachusetts colony. Right. John Winthrop, who becomes the leader of that mm. uh, colony, we recall. Uh, other Puritans are going to what is today Connecticut, uh, for example. Uh, but it's a large phenomenon. And the pilgrims just happen to be uh, on the sort of the front of that wave of, right. of migration. So last question sort of in this realm. Um, so if we were to do the best we can to recreate or even read back their motivations for leaving were a little bit leaving Holland where it was kind of all right. Like as far as like their safety economics and the fact that bad company corrupts good morals. <laughs> and so my question there is, I mean, how on, on earth could the, um, the pros and cons have been like, yeah, I think it's a good idea. The fact that a, a lot of us might die. I, I know you mentioned that they were expecting easier weather and a lot that, but I mean, I mean, it seemed like a really huge rewit risk. Yeah. It seemed like they couldn't just muscle through. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. It is a big risk. Uh, and, and that's part of the story that I think we often gloss over, which I think is really dramatic. Because, uh, again, you sort of have to read between the lines from the sources, but there's, there's clear implication that that congregation in Leiden didn't, didn't all agree on whether this was the wise course. Mm. Uh, some will actually stay, some will probably, I think, return to, to England, uh, and some will go. Mm. And it was, it was a difficult uh, decision that they ultimately made. And, and part of it was because not necessarily other uh, church groups, but they knew that there had been uh, groups of migrant to North America that had encountered, uh, you know, really difficult times, mm. including disease that killed uh, large numbers even on the on the voyage. So they, they knew it was risky. Uh, and in particular, I think reading some of these documents, William Bradford's uh, history is written long after the fact, and he's remembering. And what he knows when he's writing his history is that 
half of the passengers of the Mayflower died in the first winter. Imagine that he's remembering that it was controversial to begin with. And some had said, no, this is too dangerous. Others had said, no, we need to, to try this. And then they know what happened. And, and so I can imagine, I don't know if they would have felt guilty, but certainly uh, it must have been a very sobering sort of memory uh, that he had. So yeah, it, uh, it is um, significant. But the other thing that I would say is it's not like they made the decision really quickly. They, they gave Leiden about 12 years and they had no reason to believe that it was gonna get better. And they were beginning to see members of their congregation basically give up and return to England. Hmm. Uh, and that's, the, that's one of the things that I really always am, am impressed by uh, is that in the end, they didn't respond to this as a bunch of individuals or even as a bunch of different families. Hmm. They responded to the church collect, I mean, excuse me, to the crisis collectively. And, yeah. and they said, is there a way that we can keep our congregation together uh, as opposed to just doing nothing and letting people gradually sort of fall away? You do that. You cover that really well, like in the in the book of just like sort of contrasting the our modern individualism with it was a really like like right now it's like me, me, me. And then they really were concerned with like the us, the community. Always, it's always helpful to hear that stuff. Like I know I'm so guilty. And so it's helpful to hear that. Um, were there any notable notable people like in that band? Or, or like ranging from leaving anything behind, whether like inventions or theological books or books on agriculture or certain <laughs> dogma or a joke or any things that we might have caught wind of. Yeah, you know, in terms of the, the folks who ultimately uh, migrate to North America, you know, the answer is, is pretty much no. They're, they're very... I mean, the, the phrase that would have been used at the time, they're common folk, they're rural people, uh, they're not particularly wealthy. There's a, a couple that probably were comfortable, but most of them have been very humble. Um, and they're, they're not gonna be remembered for uh, military accomplishments or political accomplishments or major intellectual or theological uh, works. Um, and, and, and I actually think that's part of their appeal. Uh, our encounter with them, we're, we're saying these are folks who were very unexceptional on one level. Uh, they didn't have enormous advantages of any kind, and yet they seem to exhibit extraordinary courage and, and perseverance. Uh, and, and there's something about that that I think allows us maybe to relate to them a little bit more and find their story a little bit more challenging and inspiring. Mm -hmm because we we can imagine that they weren't that different from from you or I yeah so so if I'm as I'm like hearing what you're saying and reading the book um I'm thinking to myself don't hate me for this but I'm thinking if we didn't have all this like backloaded history on them or like pseudo history and things associated they might literally just be like a page in one page in a pretty big history book you wouldn't even flip and say oh that's cool you might go hmm and then just turn to the next page why <laughs> why are they not how did they go from a huh to like e like literally every like everywhere closes closes on thanksgiving <laughs> sure what happened? yeah first of all i don't hate you uh, and, 
and secondly, uh, I think you're right. I mean, uh, the fact that we do remember them uh, or they have, you know, loomed so large in our memory isn't obvious. I mean, it, it's a, it's a sort of a curiosity. So I think mm. there are a variety of things. Uh, just to, to start, you know, as a story, and I always am reminded that the stories that get told are the stories where evidence survives. And, mm. and one of the things that sets the story apart uh, is that this man, William Bradford, who is one of the Mayfire passengers, relatively young man when he first migrates, uh, he, for all practical purposes, is the first American historian. And he writes a wonderful, rich history uh, of the uh, of the colony. But beyond that, these were folks who actually kept really good records. So we have we have the record of the first laws that they passed and quite a bit of their correspondence. Uh, and, and so that's the first thing. I mean, they left a trail uh, mm -hmm. in a way that not everyone did. Sure. Also, it, it's not uh, insignificant that they are uh, ensconced there in New England because over time, within a short period of time, there are gonna be these major centers of learning uh, grow up. Uh, and a lot, of the, a lot of the textbook history that gets written for the next, almost to this day is written disproportionately uh, by um, you know, uh, teachers uh, in, in New England. And, and so I, I think that's part of it uh, as well. But actually, you know, I, I think it's, it's an interesting story. The, these records that I'm talking about largely uh, were not discovered until a couple of centuries later. William Bradford's history, uh, he writes it out by hand and it's sort of kept in his family and then it disappears during the American Revolution. And it actually shows up, it probably was, was stolen by British soldiers during the American Revolution. It shows up in London and is oh. discovered actually in the 1850s. So about 230 years after the landing of the Mayflower. Uh, and that's really the moment uh, that Americans sort of rediscover this group. And by this time, uh, you, know, you know, Americans are, are creating a sense of their own history, of their own origins. Uh, and they, they find this group that was very religious, that was very family oriented, that was otherwise sort of common folk. Uh, and they really latch onto the story. Uh, one of the ways to think about it is that the other group that starts at about the same time is the Jamestown colony. But the Jamestown colony in Virginia is 100% male originally uh, and um, much more commercially oriented. It, it has a religious dimension, but it's not as strong. Yeah. And uh, Americans sort of honestly can sort of weigh the two and say, which is the one that we're going to declare our, our ancestor? <laughs> and they, they think that the pilgrims model the values that they're wanting to uh, encourage in the way that Jamestown did. That's super compelling. That was, a, that was a new one. Thank you for doing all the reading and connecting the dots for us so that we just had to hear that response. And it probably mm -hmm. took you hours and hours and hours to piece that. So thank you. Um, I guess... I, I, like so many questions come to my mind, but I think you said you had some, somewhere in the book, you had mentioned that um, as far as Thanksgiving proper, as we know it today, um, it, of the two main sources, I think you said, I think you said one of the sources was silent on the supposed day. And then the other source was like four lines or something. Can you speak to, uh, yeah, can you just speak to 
Thanksgiving proper. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. So, so this is really sort of a different question. We've been talking about who the pilgrims were. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's so much more we'd like to know that we don't, but we still know a fair amount. Then when you switch to what we call the first Thanksgiving, truth is we don't know very much at all. Uh, and almost, honestly, almost everything that uh, is part of our popular memory is imagined. So, uh, so William Bradford, who wrote this really compelling history, never mentions it. So the one source that does mention it is uh, a pamphlet that is published early in the history of the Plymouth Colony. Uh, it's uh, uh, published in England, as almost certainly was produced uh, to try to uh, elicit more interest in migration and also perhaps uh, more investment uh, in, in the colony. But in this little pamphlet, uh, there is a letter that one of the pilgrim uh, leaders writes to uh, acquaintance back in England. And in this longer letter, he refers very briefly uh, to this celebration and he devotes four sentences uh, to it. Uh, so the sum total of evidence that we have on what we call the first Thanksgiving uh, is four sentences. Uh, and and we, we really have built this enormous kind of, you know, pauper memory uh, over that. The, the thing I think is important to know about this event, uh, which some people don't find very helpful to know or disappointing to know, uh, is that the pilgrims would not have called it a Thanksgiving. Now, now they, they, they were celebrating the, the harvest and they certainly were grateful to God uh, for that. Uh, and so it wasn't that they didn't think of it as an expression of thanks. But when they said Thanksgiving, they had something very specific in mind. Uh, so the, the, the pilgrims were really attached to what um, theologians call the regulative principle. And, and so they were not going to add anything to scripture. And, and basically, whereas sometimes we think we have freedom wherever the scripture does not forbid something, they actually said we don't have freedom except right. where the scripture explicitly authorizes right. Right. So that really guided the way they thought about holidays or holy days. So they would have said the only regular holy day was the Sabbath that was clearly, you know, um, uh, commanded in Scripture. Uh, then they believed that there were two other uh, holy days that um, were authorized by the Old Testament. But these were what they would have described as providential holy days or irregular. So they want something that you would put on the calendar and celebrate at the same time every year. Right. So one was this day of fasting and humiliation. And that was a holy day in response to some sort of unusual trial in which they would basically prostrate themselves before God and seek his mercy and deliverance. Uh, and then the other uh, holy day would be a day of thanksgiving. Uh, and that was supposed to be celebrated when God, in some extraordinary way, uh, had delivered uh, them from, from a trial. Mm. Uh, and so uh, these holy days would have been spent uh, collective, collectively. They would have been in church. Uh, they would involve long services of prayer and worship. Uh, they weren't parties. <laughs> they were pretty, uh, pretty solemn events. Uh, and... Um, and the most important thing is they were um, never scheduled. They had to be a kind of spontaneous response to God's intervention uh, in their lives. So they wouldn't have called that 1621 uh, celebration uh, a Thanksgiving. Their first Thanksgiving that, that they would have called 
uh, is something we almost never remember, uh, although Bradford did talk about it a lot as opposed mm. to um, this 1621 event. And that comes in 1623. The pilgrims are still struggling to sort of eke out a, a living. Uh, they're still concerned every winter that they'll have enough food to make it to, um, you know, through the next year, the next harvest. And, and things are, are tough. And in the late spring of 1623, according to uh, the sources, um, the corn is, is doing okay. And then a drought begins. And the drought lasts for about two months. Hmm. Uh, and the corn is just withering on the stalk. And they just imagine it's going to be... Uh, just a devastating impact on their harvest. How will they possibly make it through the next year? Uh, and so they call for a day of humiliation and fasting. Mm. Uh, and they gather in their meeting house and they spend the entire day in prayer and worship. Uh, and uh, one of the pilgrim writers, not William Bradford, describes this. He says, a day that began with absolutely crystal clear sky uh, ended very overcast and during the night, a gentle rain began to fall that lasted for about two weeks without interruption. And they said you could just see the corn sort of recover almost right. as you were watching it. Yeah. Uh, and so the writer goes on to say, you know, we, um, uh, we uh, sought the, the Lord's deliverance collectively. We weren't then going to retire into our private homes to give him thanks. We were going to gather together. And so they call for a day of Thanksgiving, formally declared by the governor, uh, and they spend all day in prayer and worship, thanking God for, for the rain. And so that's in the summer of 1623. That was the first Thanksgiving, they would have said. And we've just totally forgotten it. I love, I love, when I was reading that, I, I had like, <clears throat> oh my gosh. Was it like, where are you Christmas? Okay. <clears throat> Anyways, there's a song that's saying, where are you Christmas? And that's how I always feel about Thanksgiving. I'm like, mm. oh, I, I, I try to conjure up some gratitude. You know, if I'm being honest, I'm like, oh, and thank you for the family and my shoes and, you know. Um, but Thanksgiving itself, I never quite knew the story. And I'm like, I don't know. how. That but when I was reading that account and even and you you quote them direct, even they're they're like everything sounds cooler back then. They're like <laughs> the the our withered hearts were no longer withered like the corn or something like that. Right. Yep. I thought that yep. was really compelling. But um, my, my question for you is on this is either on that that first non Thanksgiving or that that official unofficial harvest Thanksgiving. Um, I got to ask about like turkey and Indians. <laughs> we got turkeys or Indians. Uh, I, I'm only laughing because it always comes up when we talk about this. Uh, we always want to know, uh, you know, what they had to eat. Uh, and, um, th you know, this is just another one of those examples in which most of how we imagine the celebration is just that. It's imagined. It, it, there's no evidence to support it. Um, I, I'll just say very, you know, really quickly, parenthetically, most of our images of that celebration date to the late 1800s, so almost three centuries uh, later. There was a very popular writer who wrote a novel about uh, the Plymouth Colony and described all the celebration, and it got pick up, picked up by popular magazines, and, and pretty soon we all knew exactly what it was like. Uh, but we go back to those four sentences. Um, it really, all it says, it says that the governor sent four men out, and the word they used, or a term, was on fouling, by which they meant out to hunt birds. 
Uh, and so one of the things we're sure would have been on the menu was some sort of poultry, probably not turkey. Uh, even though they had lots of wild turkeys in the area, these were incredibly fast birds. Uh, and the kinds of weapons that the pilgrims had at the time, the guns that they used in the early 17th century were called matchlocks. And the reason they used that term was that they literally had what they called a match, which today we would call a fuse, that they lit uh, that would gradually go up to the pan and set the powder uh, to explode and that would propel uh, the, uh, the ball. But uh, they were very heavy. They were almost as big as the Pilgrim men were uh, tall. Uh, and they would have fired them from a tripod because they were so heavy. Oh, so it's man. not that they were, you know, uh, shooting birds out of the sky. Uh, they were probably hiding in vines and shooting water birds, uh, blasting them uh, from the, the ponds. And there are all kinds of ponds uh, around Plymouth. So they probably had duck and geese and uh, even swan. Swan was considered a delicacy in 17th oh. century England. So they would have been thinking, wow, this is amazing. Uh, herons, cranes, uh, you know, any kind of waterfowl. Uh, then the, the source also tells us uh, that some uh, of the local Native American tribe, which was called the Wampanoag, uh, they show up and bring with them five deer. So the other thing that we know for sure they had was venison. Okay. Uh, some, you know, some sort of water bird and venison. Uh, they wouldn't have had uh, pumpkin pie because they didn't have ovens uh, at the time. Uh, they might have had, they could have had stewed pumpkin, but not uh, a baked pie. Uh, they wouldn't have had uh, sweet potatoes, yams, because those weren't indigenous to that part of the world. Um, they wouldn't probably have had cranberry sauce. Uh, they could have, but they had no sugar. And hmm. I think straight cranberries would have been hard for most folks. Um, so uh, it, it's not the meal that we imagine. They did enjoy uh, vegetables, and so they had gardens and we they talk about that in the sources they use the term salad for basically any kind of vegetable uh and they grew a lot of root vegetables like carrots and turnips and um parsnips and, and that sort of thing but so we're talk, probably talking about duck and turnips um and some venison uh but not turkey and dressing i'm, I'm sad to say it's funny the whole time you're saying that i'm such a dad because you said they didn't have ovens and I'm such a dad because the entire time, having said they came from the Netherlands, I'm trying to think of a Dutch oven joke, oh. but I couldn't get any. Oh, whatever. Okay. Just a few more questions. This has been super good. That, that recounting you just said of the hunting, the mode of hunting, the food, was that just sort of, was that like that specific second time, that second sort of celebration or the first one, or is that just sort of what they ate on the norm? Yeah, so I'm, I was, was really talking generally. I mean, we, we know that in that uh, first celebration, the one that we call the first Thanksgiving, we know that they would have had fowl. We know mm. that they would have had venison. But other than that, I'm just sort of talking about what we know about the English diet at the time and, and the Got fact you. That they don't have uh, ovens. Um, they do have Dutch ovens, though. <laughs> I there you go. <laughs> so, Dr. Um, McKee, what, the, what's their what's their day-to-day -day life like? What are they even trying? How do they view themselves? Like, what are they doing there? And what, what is like the, the their normal comings and goings? Well, you know, they, they, they actually, they're, they're wanting to find a way to make a living and keep their congregation together. Uh, and that's about as far as they're thinking. In, in a way that 
again, a detail that we tend to forget. They actually convince the um, financiers in England that are going to pay for their expenses up front. They convince them that they can make a huge profit fishing uh, and engaging in fur trade. And they have no experience with fishing and they have no experience with the fur trade. But, but those are the two uh, most lucrative options that they have. And they say that's what they're going to do. But they actually don't ever succeed in, in either of those. Um, so what it boils down to is they do their best to recreate a kind of English rural village like they might have remembered from earlier uh, in their lives. Yeah. And you think about it, there are no horses indigenous to North America. There are no cattle indigenous to North America. And, and getting horses and cattle uh, across the Atlantic is a, is a challenge. Uh, and so they don't have any uh, in that Mayflower voyage. They bring some chickens and they bring a couple of dogs. And those are the only animals that they have. Gradually, they, they build on that. But it's a very arduous uh, existence. I mean, they're scratching a living out of the ground, mostly growing corn. The one thing that they uh, benefited from that they got tired of that we would find attractive uh, is that the, the bay there is just absolutely full of lobster and mussels and scallops. <laughs> Uh, and so when they're on the verge of starvation, what they have uh, is, is um, shellfish, basically, uh, and they eat a great deal of that. Nice. So um, sort of my last question for you, what, like what, what would you su suggest or encourage us to, to keep in our minds about these pilgrims and, and how we could benefit beyond, you know, just a couple like deviled eggs and, and the Macy's Day Parade. <laughs> like in a very real very sense, nice. like I'm a guy who needs to like re recite realities in my mind so I could like, like objectively hang a hat on them. Yep. Is there anything that you yep. recommend? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. There's one thing in particular that is just a practical application that, that I thought of for myself personally. Uh, and, and that is to try to learn something from their model about uh, how to integrate Thanksgiving into their, um, their religious um, following of, of, mm. of Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I, I have no problems with celebrating Thanksgiving next Thursday and, and my family would, would do that. But what I really appreciate uh, is their understanding that regular holidays always carry the danger of becoming sort of empty rituals. And the idea that they're, they're saying, no, we're not gonna have a regular holiday we're going to declare holidays as God intervenes in our lives. Oh, I like that. I like that because yeah. it creates a kind of sense of expectation. And I've often thought when my, when my kids were small, I would have given anything. I, I, I had not done this research when they were small, but I would have given anything to know about this because I would love to have, uh, not that I would have welcomed hard times, but I, I would have loved to say, we're going to declare a holy day to ask God to, to come to our rescue. And then it, uh, when, when God provided, whether it was taking someone through a serious illness uh, or uh, providing a job or what, you know, whatever the blessing was, just to say, you know, declare, hey, we're calling this next uh, someday, this is gonna be a holy day in our family in which we stop everything else. We think about what God has done I think that's the kind of thing that small children could remember. And, and I think it, it just creates a different mindset. We were always waiting to be surprised by what God might do. 
as opposed to saying, okay, the fourth Thursday of every November, we're going to give thanks whether we feel uh, very thankful or not, right? Super powerful. We've been talking with Dr. Robert Tracy McKenzie. The book is The First Thanksgiving, What the Real Story Tells Us About Loving God and Learning from History, and that's IVP Academic 2013. And thanks for joining us. Do you have anything... Um, Anything you're working on or recently worked on, or are you just working on basting that turkey on Thursday? <laughs> well, I, uh, I will be doing that, but I have been working on a book that I've just about finished that will be out next summer, uh, for also from IVP, uh, that's called We the Fallen People, uh, and it's a revisitation of early American democracy, thinking about um, democracy from a Christian perspective, and in particular, what we believe the Bible teaches us about human nature and how that might inform the way that we respond uh, politically uh, to our neighbors. Okay, you'll be hearing from us uh, this summer. Thank you so much. Happy Thanksgiving. You are very welcome. Jason, it's just been a delight to, to visit with you. So I hope you have a great Thanksgiving also. We came for salvation. We came for family. We came for all that's good, that's how we'll walk away. We came to break the bad, we came to cheer the sad, we came to leave.